Welcome to the Indigo Podcast, an exploration of human flourishing at work and beyond. I'm Ben Barron of Indigo Anchor and Cleveland State University. And I'm Chris Everett of Indigo Anchor. For more information, please visit us at www.indigopodcast.com. Okay, so today's podcast topic is failure is an option, why managers derail and how to avoid it. Ben, have we seen some manager derailment in our day? Well, I certainly have. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about what that what that means and what that looks like and a little bit about how to avoid it. Uh, and uh, it's not a good thing, you know? Yeah, so some of the topics that I want to cover today is uh, what is manager derailment and why it happens? Practical ways in which people can reduce the probability of derailing themselves. So, hey, how do I stop this for myself? And what are some steps for organizations to avoid having their managers derail? You know, you go through all that hassle of finding and hiring managers or promoting within. How do you set those managers up for success? That's right. So, Ben, starting off with what is manager or managerial derailment and why does it happen? So managerial derailment is when you have somebody who you expect to do really well and they end up plateauing in their role, all right? So some of the early research on this uh, suggests that managerial derailment is when you are involuntarily plateaued, demoted, or fired below the level of anticipated achievement or reaching that level only to fail unexpectedly. And that comes out of some research from the Center for Creative Leadership back in 1988. So it's kind of old research that's been around for a while. This idea has been troubling both researchers and organizations for a couple of decades now. You know, so another way to think about this is a manager is, uh, has derailed when this person was expected to perform well, but they didn't. You know? So sometimes organizations go through a lot of effort to try to define who their high potential leaders are and then try to groom them to be, become the next uh, leaders of the organization. They promote these people. And when you have one of these people who doesn't work out, even though maybe some of the uh, initial signs were that they would be great for the role, uh, that is managerial derailment. And you know, so what we tend to know is that these managers engage in some self-defeating behaviors. They fail to learn from prior experience. They fail to adapt to the situation well, or they exhibit some weaknesses that can't really be offset by some of their other strengths. So that's a little bit about what it is. Now, wait, wait a minute, Ben. So, man, I know you're starting to focus on like the managers themselves, but one of the things I've also seen is, oh, we're going to hire this person and magically they're going to make all of our problems disappear or hey, this person, hey, we need to hire a person and they're going to do ABC, JFK, LMNOP, and one, two, three, four, five. And they just, there's just so much expectations around that manager and what they, you know, no human could do all that stuff. So it's not just, just the manager for why they derail. But does the literature uh, talk about that as well, or is it mainly just focused on the individual? Well, I think certainly we can, uh, you know, point to the literature about organizational culture. And, you know, when you have somebody who's not set up for success and you take a great person and you put them in a bad situation, it doesn't really matter sometimes, uh, you know, their 
strengths. It doesn't really matter their personality, their abilities. Uh, they are being set up to fail, and they will end up failing. And that, of course, is problematic. So sometimes, you know, it, it's not necessarily the person's fault, as we'll talk about here in a, a few minutes. But uh, you know, so there are some things that organizations can do to set the, to try to set their managers up for success. Uh, and then some things that managers themselves can do to try to inoculate themselves, so to speak, from this uh, this idea of managerial derailment. And I think that kind of leads us into why this happens or some of the causes from it, you think? Yeah, so some of the stuff you talked about um, is managers engaging in self-defeating behaviors. What are, what are a few of those behaviors that we see and that the literature talks about? Sure, so... Some of this comes from uh, a great book that I've, I've used a number of times with both managers and companies and in my teaching MBA students, and it's a book called Be the Boss Everyone Wants to Work For, and it's written by my friend Bill Gentry, and he's done research on this topic quite a bit and summarizes it in an evidence-based, research-based type of way for this book uh, that's still accessible to folks. And, and he outlines that there are four general reasons why people derail and these are pretty much applicable across the board from, you know, first-time supervisors all the way through executives. And as we'll talk about here in a few minutes, I think there are probably some other things at the more senior levels that can contribute to derailment. But in general, these four things tend to contribute to it. One is just stuff happens, right? Outside of your control, you can't necessarily do a whole lot about it, and you can't necessarily foresee or prevent that. So that's one category. So what are some examples of stuff that's outside your control that could derail you as a manager? Well, it could be something related to the uh, the task at hand. You know, you may be tasked with, uh, you know, launching a, a product or a service in a completely saturated market where there's really no hope for success or trying to deal with uh, some strategy that's just completely mismatched with the external environment. It could be something where maybe there's, uh, you know, deep ethical issues within other parts of the organization that bleed over into yours. Really a whole host of things that, that really could happen uh, that affect you. You could have some key people who leave or do some really bad things. Uh, so those are kind of things that are outside of your control. And especially if those ha things happen, you know, early on when you take on a manager managerial role. You, you can't really foresee them, and they just happen to you. But, you know, you had talked about what are some of these behaviors, these self-defeating behaviors that can uh, cause a person to uh, derail. And, you know, the other four uh, reasons, so the first one is stuff happens, one being, the, the second one being success goes to our heads. You know, so sometimes maybe we get promoted into a position, and it's based upon our prior success. And we think really highly of ourselves. And we think, wow, you know, uh, they promoted me. I must be doing something right. And therefore, if I just keep doing what I'm doing, uh, then I'm going to do well. And, and you start to think that you're just a successful person. Therefore, things will just work out. And that complacency can be really dangerous. So that's, that's the second reason. The third one is that your weaknesses can go ignored. So if you have Certain weaknesses, you've got to pay attention to those. And some of those weaknesses come from some other research that's been done on this. And there's this kind of idea of, uh, you know, that there are sets of behaviors that we categorize as moving against other people. And this, these are things like, uh, you know, being overly selfish and ambitious. And, uh, and, and actually, you know, 
uh, being overly confident, right? You, there's this tricky balance when you're a manager. You need to be confident. But if you're overly confident, and uh, that can be really off-putting to other people, and you might not be uh, taking their perspectives into account, you might not be listening to other people, and you may be perceived as being manipulative. And that, that certainly can be problematic. So that can be kind of one set of those weaknesses. And then the fourth one is that strengths become weaknesses. So stuff happens, number one. Success goes to our heads, number two. Weaknesses go ignored, number three. And number four, strengths become weaknesses. So something that made you successful in your prior role might be something that becomes a weakness later on. So the example I always use when I talk with students is, by personality, my characteristic of of conscientiousness, of having attention, attention to detail, liking to plan things, that's a very strong trait that I have. And it's really great at the individual contributor level, right? And it it also helps a little bit at higher levels of responsibility. However, when someone is overly conscientious, then it could lead potentially to being completely disoriented when stuff happens, when you're trying to deal with ambiguity and change. And, you know, my tendency, just using myself as an example, to really want things to be well-ordered could be a derailer if I'm not careful in those times of rapid change or volatility. So those are kind of those four different buckets of, of reasons, at least from Bill Gentry's research, looking at these different potential causes for managerial derailment. You know, Ben, that sounds like kind of like one of those lame job interview questions. Tell us your greatest weakness. Oh, oh, well, I'm overly conscientious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, exactly. I'm really on time. And so sometimes it hurts my teammates' feelings because I'm annoyed when they're late. I'm a workaholic. <laughs> I just produce so much excellence that it's, it's unsettling to everyone around me. You know, they've, Absolutely. they've got that whole body of stuff around, like, the strength finders movement. And mm-hmm. there's so much positive in that. But one of the things is certain environments or jobs or managerial roles, a a whole host of things, there's like a barrier to entry. So like, so say you had a baseball team and, um, well, I don't even know that much about baseball, but you can't just be a good batter. You actually do have to be able to play some kind of field position, right? Um, or, you know, there's certain weaknesses. Like if your weaknesses is you don't shower, I don't know if your managerial <laughs> strength is going to compensate for that. And so one one problem that I see a lot of people take the strengths um, focus is they don't say like, okay, so you're strong on these 10 things, but these two weaknesses will actually trump those those larger strengths that you would have. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when you talk about weaknesses, go ignored. Uh, if you don't have accounting knowledge, if you don't know how to understand a PL statement, and that's a requirement of your job, you, you can't ignore that PL. You need to go learn how to manage a profit loss statement, that kind of thing. So sure, sure. So some of those weaknesses could be knowledge or skill based. Other ones could be, you know, related to how you interact with other people. If one of your weaknesses is that you have a tendency to become defensive and you react with hostility when people challenge your ideas, that's a problem. And you shouldn't just say, well, my, one of my strengths is that I'm really confident and persuasive, so I'm going to rely on that. 
okay, that, that's a great strength, but you also need to realize that you might be really isolating yourself and derailing yourself by not paying attention to and working on that weakness. Right. And I think this is also where like company culture comes to bear. You know, if somebody's the loudest voice, I mean, there's some research around if you just appear super confident, what are some of the behaviors like being really loud, interrupting others? You know, these these ideas are often promoted within organizations. But when we when we look at stuff that in healthy organizations cause managers to derail and their teams to abandon them, such as like selfish impulsivity um, exploiting others, those kind of items, you know, some organizations will actually promote that kind of stuff because that's how somebody kind of sticks out from the pack, but that's actually moving against people. Those kind of behaviors that, that should cause derailment and probably will cause derailment in execution. So it could be like a doctor that has a brilliant bedside manner but is actually horrible in their treatment. You know, everybody may feel mm-hmm. that everything's okay, but really the cancer is not being treated be- beneath, right? Right, right. Or, or vice versa, where you have somebody who is a technical expert. You know, maybe it's a doctor who is the world's best oncologist, and yet they're completely rude to everyone who comes in there. Now, you may say, okay, well, if I have cancer, I don't care if the person's rude. I think it's probably fair to say. However, we all see these organizations, and we've probably worked with people who were really bona fide technical experts, and yet they were interpersonal wrecking balls within their organizations. And in general, uh, most organizations find out that that's just not worth it in terms of a trade-off. And the, you, know, you can find people who can, can be um, just as talented as those other folks who don't have the interpersonal uh, problems that that maybe comes along with with the original person. So I think it's really important to to kind of consider the whole gamut of different things that are important for a role for a job and do your best to to select and develop people to uh, to meet those competencies. Yeah, what one of the challenges in talking about this stuff and and some of the stuff that's around in the literature is one of the big things that causes managerial derailment is lack of self-awareness, mm-hmm. right? And it's, so it's like, well, gee, how do I know if I'm selfish and impulsive? Or how do I, how do I reflect on that? So probably step one, if, if you're worried about that, you probably have some kind of level of self-awareness. If, mm-hmm. if you're completely not reflective on that, well, I don't know. It's, you know... How do you measure self-awareness and how do you get somebody to have more of it? It's interesting. So the one way that researchers have measured self-awareness is by looking at the difference between how people rate themselves on different leadership uh, behaviors and how other people around them rate them. Rate right. them. So you know, if you have a multi-rater assessment, a 360, so to speak, where you are getting rate, ratings from not only you rate yourself on your behaviors, but then you also get ratings from your peers and from your direct reports and from your supervisor. If those are really misaligned, then you can point to you know some level of lack of self-awareness. But when there's good uh, alignment around those saying, you know, I rate myself pretty highly on this thing and so does everybody else, or I rate myself pretty low on this one behavior and so does everyone else then that's one indication of a uh, high level of self-awareness. 
Right. But to your point, uh, to your point, I think it is tough because if if you're someone who really lacks self awareness, then they you probably don't even know that you lack self awareness because that's part of your self your lack of self awareness, right? Right. Well, one of the interesting things um, that I've discovered of late is doing some work with people on the autism spectrum, right? And and if if you have autism, you may not necessarily know other than, gee, I seem to miss it in these social situations. So you might be mm-hmm. a little bit aware, but not being able to pick up on a lot of those things, we've seen a lot of resilience within the autism community around, okay, well, what behaviors do I need to pick up so that the people around me feel listened to and these types of items? Um, and that somebody who actually has a neurological situation where they may not pick up on all those cues can actually adopt those behaviors and navigate it well. So if you're somebody, maybe you're not on the autism spectrum, but um, you may have some of those difficulties picking up on cues, there's actually a lot of stuff that that you can do. So self-awareness, if you just care about it, there's things you can do. You don't have to worry about if, if you meet some kind of arbitrary line in the sand of enough self-awareness per se. Right, right. Absolutely. So self-awareness is absolutely key. We know that from the research in terms of how that can be one of those things that can help to inoculate you from uh, managerial derailment. Of course, at the executive level, there are other things that can get in, in the way of your success. You can have strategic missteps, There might be some failure to take action uh, quickly enough with underperforming products or services or people, some of those things. But, you know, across the board, self-awareness, very, very important. And uh, that's kind of the fatal flaw, so to speak, that points to managerial derailment in many situations. Yeah. So if you're a lay person, those stuff, you know, stuff happens, success goes to your head. You don't pay attention to your weakness, you know, just going down the list. Strengths become your weakness. You know, that's kind of at that, you know, beginning manager level or senior manager level and stuff. But when you start to step up to the director level, vice president level, um, you actually have some strategy stuff. So on top of all that stuff that you need to have under control, such as not ignoring your weakness and and those kinds of things, you actually have to drive strategy or key initiatives, deliver uh, projects, those kinds of things with the team of people that you have. So not Mm -hmm. only do you have to master that as core competency, you actually have to have these strategic competencies. And, you know, the book I like to use when coaching those behaviors and for executives in transition is this book called The First 90 Days, which we'll put a link to that in the show notes. Um, And just briefly, that book has, it's a checklist for executives on how to avoid derailment based on those strategy type, you know, tactical and strategic items outside of just what happens within teams and interpersonal workings, right? Absolutely. And I I love that book for a variety of reasons. But one of them is that even if you, let's say you have a lack of self-awareness and, uh, you know, maybe you you don't even realize that because you have a lack of self-awareness, if you're looking at that book, there's a ton of stuff in there that will be helpful reminders to you. So if you just trust it and start to do some of the things that are in that book, you will be helping yourself a great deal. Right. Uh, so I, I think it's a, a great resource. I know a lot of folks in talent management roles who 
work with executives once they get promoted within their organizations and work with outsiders maybe who get hired into senior level roles. And that's a common resource that they use as well. All right. So, so to steal that Jeff Foxworthy line, you might be a redneck if, so you might be, a, <laughs> <laughs> you might be a derailer if Ben. Uh, a few things. So I think you, you, you know, if you find yourself rely, relying heavily on those old strengths, you might be derailing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, Cause I think, you know, it's easy for you to, uh, it, when you're in an uncomfortable new situation where it maybe demands some other skills from you, or it's like, Hey, I'm just going to retreat to what's worked before. And I'm going to keep on doing all those things. That could be a signal that you're uh, derailing a bit, or maybe you're not paying attention to, to some of your, uh, uh, aspects of your role that need attention. Yeah. I, I see that so much both with, uh, newer officers in the military well, mm-hmm. and, and see even senior officers that are thrust into a new position. I see that with people stepping into new levels of responsibility. They just play the playbook that they have. And a lot of times that playbook came from, what did my previous manager do? Or Mm -hmm. what have I seen? Um, And that's a good place to start to have some kind of context. But there's actually so much good help out there for um, managers that that need to pick up core skills. How do you schedule a meeting? Um, What should happen in meetings? A whole host of things. So if you haven't really thrived, or even better, if you want to do better than the person that was your mentor or boss, you can build that skill set using the literature that's out there. So don't don't rely on old strengths. You actually need a new playbook now that you're a manager. Yep, yep. I think that's that's wise. You know, you might be derailing if you're doing the same things as you did in your pre- previous position. Uh, you might be derailing if you find you are continually surprising your boss in a bad way that usually <laughs> is not a good thing <laughs> i mean because so much about leadership and management is about communication and so you know it's you know if you have bad news and you need to surprise your boss you you got to you got to do it but if that's a recurring thing they're going to start to wonder what's up with you and you know if you're not recognizing some of those weak signals of what's going on and making sure that you're managing that stakeholder environment as a manager then that could be a um, a sign that you might be on the path towards derailment. Cool. Let, let's do another one. You might be a derailer if... You find yourself getting overly defensive with others. And I think this applies to everyone uh, at all levels within the organization, if, you know, in terms of managers. So, you know, if you're finding yourself always having to, you know, um, argue with people about your position or about what you're trying to do, uh, that's a sign that you're probably not listening to them and you're kind of using your, perhaps your strength of being bold and confident, uh, in a, in a way that is becoming a weakness. But Ben, I'm not overly defensive. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. It kind of reminds me of this time that I I did a three, I had a 360 on myself and one person said that, um, one of the comments about me was that I don't take uh, criticism well. And my first reaction was, what? (laughs) (laughs) I know. Well, it can hurt the ego, right? You know, because I I think it's easy, especially if you report to a manager to, you know, 
impugn all these kinds of motives and stuff that may not be there um, mm-hmm. to think that, oh, this person's a jerk because they're trying to be a jerk. But if you're somebody that really cares and wants to do well, you can still derail. And, and that's why you got to pay attention to these things. Yep, absolutely. Okay, so what's another one? You might be a derailer if... You find that you are doing all the work. Oh, man. We see this all the time. Um, Absolutely. Especially with high achievers who tend to get thrust in these managerial roles. It's like, wow, we should, this person does really well. They're an excellent software developer, or they're an accountant that's always ahead and helping others. Um, But your success as a manager of other people means that you're actually using the team to to run the race well you know uh mm-hmm. if, if you're a dog sledder or something you can't just have two dogs out of 10 that are pulling all the weight although that happens all the time you need to be firing on all cylinders so if you're a manager and you're just like oh i just can't trust anybody i'll just do it myself you've really just handicapped that whole part of the organization and that's not good absolutely and it points to the fact that you aren't probably spending enough time and effort uh, developing the people who work for you. Right. You know, the kind of a pre a necessary precursor to delegating is development. So, you know, you you maybe, you know, people differ on on how much developing they need, but you can kind of try it. You can learn that through some trial and error. You assign someone a task, see how they do with it and then mentor accordingly. But uh yeah, if you find yourself doing all the work, that's 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 a bad situation. You know, sometimes I think I, when I think about my kind of leadership journey early on, I kind of had this impression that, you know, leadership was just about working absolutely harder than anyone else. And this is where one of my strengths can really become a weakness because I can, I will out discipline and work, you know, pretty much anyone if I really try. And, uh, you know, you'll end up burning yourself out. You'll end up not having the support you need when really complex tasks come to you. So, Definitely uh, start to develop and delegate uh, within your team so that you don't derail. Yeah, and I think that's also a challenge. So if you are on, so if you're hired at externally to the organization, you come in, you don't have any like interpersonal narrative that kind of sets the tone, right? You're you're fresh to that place. But if you're on a team of five people and the manager gets promoted or moves out of town or something like that, goes to another organization, and now you're the manager of what used to be your peers, right? Yeah. That's super easy to just fall back on, oh, well, I do this work and they do that work. But hey, you're a manager now. There's some new behaviors and things other than just reporting on what your team does that you're going to need to embrace and execute on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Cool. So um, let's do one more. So you might be a derailer if... Your relationships are not high quality, right? If you are having uh, arguments, if you are have a lot of conflict with the people that you're working with or the people who are working for you, we, we know a lot about leadership. And one thing that is absolutely clear is that one big indicator of effective leadership is the quality of relationships that you're building with the people who work for you, the people who work around you, and so forth. So if you're not developing those high-quality relationships, if people are starting to avoid you, <laughs> if you're starting to get isolated, you're not, you know, they're not talking to you about what's going on, 
then that could be a sign that you might be derailing. So does that mean you need to have similar interests outside of work? You know, watch the same trash TV, that kind of stuff. <laughs> no, I don't. I don't think so. No, it doesn't. And, and the thing is, is that you're going to have a whole, you know, host of people who are different from you that that are working with you, and you don't need to be best friends or buddies with everyone, but you need to have a uh, what we would call a collaborative alliance, right, with right. people to to work towards common goals. Um, being courteous to people, you know, when people know in the marrow of their bones that you as a manager care about their well-being and value their contributions, you're going to go a long way. Yeah, I, I, I think another hallmark of high quality relationship and one of the ways in which organizations can set managers up to fail is is being very specific about not only what the work needs to be done, but how it should get done. So if you're a CEO or head of HR, that kind of thing, if you're really clear in your values within the organization, that that gives kind of a kind of flag in the sand type thing that that managers can rally to. So, you know, hey, listen, a high quality relationship for me as a manager means that we do the right thing even when nobody's looking, right? Yeah. Or and this is how we take care of the customer. And so you can mm-hmm. kind of set that platform for what high quality interactions look like, um, both externally and within that team and, and between, you know, that kind of, I, I think the literature calls it what leader member exchange, you know, right. That the leader needs to provide some stuff to the team for that leader to be valuable to the team. Um, it's, it's not a dictatorial kind of arrangement, right? Right. Right. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, if you're concerned about whether or not you are derailing, then, and, and I actually, even if you're not concerned, I think it's always a good idea as a manager to try to gather more data about how you're do, doing. And you can do this in a, an informal way. Uh, you could ask for, you know, a more formal uh, assessment using some sort of multi-rater assessment or a, what we call a 360 type of review. Um, but ask people for, fee- for feedback, and you're going to have to do this a number of times, and because people are going to have to realize that you're genuine about it, because it, you know, and it, this I think happens even it's a little bit harder even as you become more senior. I've noticed par- this particularly in my military role um, as a as a Navy officer. As I've gotten more senior, you know, people your jokes become funnier, and people. <laughs> people are less likely to uh, to tell you that uh, you know your uh, your shiny idea isn't so great uh, until you right. really you I mean you really got to look them in the eye and be like you know no you really need to tell me um, you know the the truth and your your perspective and when they tell you something you don't like you can't shoot the messenger yeah, either or you'll either, never either, hear it again yeah right exactly yeah so don't shoot the messenger either literally or figuratively. Obviously, um, you know you just need to continually ask for feedback. Value it when you when you get it. Uh, get it from some diverse perspectives because you're going to get probably different types of feedback from different different groups because what you see and and your perspective depends on where you sit in the organization. So I think that's an important piece to try to avoid derailing as a manager. Yeah, I think another technique that that I think is really successful is sharing your learnings. So if you're regularly mm. sharing, like guys, oh my gosh. I had this idea and it was horrible and nobody told me until somebody was brave enough to mention it was a bad idea. 
Mm-hmm. And then I quickly dumped it because, guys, I, I only want to go with good ideas. So sometimes you can just, by sharing a story about how you captured learning from other people's input, you can kind of open the door to that that kind of feedback that's going to be really helpful. Yeah, that's fantastic. And it kind of opens up this whole other idea, and maybe it's a topic for a future episode, but, you know, by actually being a little bit vulnerable and showing that, hey, like I'm as a leader and as a manager, I can learn stuff too. And that I trip sometimes as well. That actually can be a real source of strength because then people are going to feel more um, like they can come to you with ideas. They can see you as a real person and uh, they're going to be more invested in saying, you know, the success of the team uh, versus, oh, this person knows what they're doing all the time and they're perfect and we'll just go with whatever they say. Right. Right. So, Ben, let's talk about some practical ways, just, you know, in the trenches ways in which people can reduce their probability of derailing. Sure. So I think it's, you know, goes back to thinking about those different causes of derailment. And there are a couple of different things. So there's some research out there. We'll provide some uh, links to to various research articles and so forth in the show notes. But you know, one of them is uh, there's kind of some specific skills that you need to have as a manager, in- including things like clarifying your goals and objectives, being orderly in how you plan work, um, having some organizational expertise. And so this is another thing that we've learned through uh, some of the research on derailment is that when a manager has what we call too narrow of a functional orientation, then they that can be a potential derailer for them. Uh, when they don't have kind of the experience from other functions within their organization because they don't then have the the perspective that they need to be able to make good decisions and so forth. This is why many organizations, when they're trying to prepare leaders to kind of take that next level of responsibility, they will oftentimes rotate them through different functions. So they'll have, you know, um, some of the fast-track leadership programs or things where maybe you spend, you know, six months with operations and six months with, uh, HR and six months with accounting and finance and so forth, so that you get this well-rounded idea of how the organization works. And of course, this is most applicable to a larger organization, uh, but having that breadth of expertise can really help you. Uh, so that's that's kind of one area uh, and some, some specific skills that managers can build to avoid derailing. Of course, you've also got to not ignore your weaknesses. Um, if there are things that that are required by the role, that are required by the situation for you to be successful, then by golly, you should probably pay attention to those things. Don't just say, well, I'm going to overcome that by having all of these amazing strengths, uh, because that could be setting yourself up for derailment. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, those weaknesses, so not every organization, some of the best organizations have those kind of managerial programs to, you know, make the rotations in the different parts. But if they don't, take charge of your own career and and make your own onboarding plan. So, yeah. I mean, you could Google some articles, you can set up like an informational lunch interview with somebody to just say, hey, listen, I'm not hitting you up for a job, but would love to take you out to lunch to just um, I hate the term pick your brain. That but <laughs> you know <laughs> Find somebody in that role or somebody on LinkedIn that kind of has a resume that you would like to have in your hometown. Take them out to lunch and find out, make a list for yourself of those key key skills that will be required as you move through your career. 
Um, yeah. And if you don't have that comprehensive knowledge in that place, start to develop it. So the stuff like clarification of goals and objectives, um, that's setting priorities, right? Order, mm-hmm. Orderly work planning, uh, you know, that's project management. So everybody within an organization should understand project management to a certain level. That doesn't mm-hmm. mean you need to go out and get your PMP or, or something like that. But, you know, watch some YouTube videos. Um, get online. How does a project plan goes? Because so, you need to be able to orderly, you know, plan that work in an orderly manner and and be able to communicate. One of the key pieces here is uh, communication plans. How will you communicate to the organization what you are doing? Is that going to be a dashboard, a weekly report or something like that? Mm-hmm. Um, how do you handle stakeholders and their different communication needs? Because if you do have good clear goals and objectives if you do uh orderly plan your work uh if you have no way of talking about it nobody's gonna know or care right right and and that's that idea of like what you're talking about is like organizational expertise versus functional so you may know accounting or software development but you need to understand how the organization is built broadly how does what you do in your function affect accounting uh, or the PL mm-hmm. statement uh those types of items those are places, so when we talk about don't ignore your weaknesses, those are the tactical, like, hard skill items that, at least in our consulting practice, that we regularly see missing from managers. Absolutely. And, you know, one byproduct of uh, going through that process of learning more about the organization and becoming more well-rounded in your understanding of how your organization delivers value that's going to be really helpful for you because it helps with your judgment and your decision-making. It helps you understand when someone from a more narrow functional orientation comes to you with some problem or some decision that needs to be made. It will help you have the perspective necessary to make that, that decision within the context of the overall organization. I think another thing that's really important, you know, kind of going along with not ignoring your weaknesses, is remembering that what got you to where you currently are What's made you successful thus far is not necessarily what's going to take you to the next level. And some of those strengths can become weaknesses, as we've already talked about. You need to continually adjust to the situation. And along the same lines, uh, you got to stay grounded. Um, You know, I I think humility and just being humble is uh, just one of the the most underrated uh, management and leadership uh, skills out there. Um, don't get complacent. Don't assume that success is guaranteed. Realize that other people have good ideas. Uh, there's a a famous uh, uh, social psychologist and organizational theorist named Carl Weick, and uh, I've been a big fan of his work for many years. And one thing that he says is that leaders should uh, argue like they're right, but listen as if they're wrong. Yeah, I just think that that's a so really good. great way to think about it. I mean, I love it, you know? Right. So, so you're a new manager, new executive coming into an organization or stepping into a role. Um, what are some things that you want to do as you just begin to step in that role? Like, wh- one of the first things that I recommend and, and lots of people would recommend is like, 
you got to have some kind of orientation to the business. So, mm-hmm. so if you're just stepping into that role, maybe you've just always been an accountant or maybe you've always been a software developer and your daily work life has to date looked like show up, hit the grind hard, be excellent in what you do. But now you're a manager or director or VP, something like that. Um, well, the first thing, you got to get oriented to the business. What is that business strategy, right? How are they placed in the environment? What are some other things that could help somebody orient themselves to the business? Well, absolutely. And so, first of all, I think the best organizations will guide their new executives through this stuff. But you you brought up something you know earlier in the episode that I think is really important that, hey, if your organization doesn't do this and isn't helping you bridge that gap from your prior role to your new one, you've got to do this yourself. You right. know, the onus is on you because it's going to be you who derails. I mean, the organization, you know, uh, they'll go on without you if you derail. And so if they don't do it, you need to do it. And this is where some of that stuff from the first 90 days, I think, can be really practical and important. You know, there are a hand, handful of, uh, for example, checklists that, that they provide in that book. Um, and one of them is this business orientation checklist. So, you know, as early as possible, for example, getting access to publicly available information about the financials, about the products, the strategy, the brands in the organization. There's a lot of stuff usually out there that you can learn a great deal about the organization from, you know, a, a higher level. And I think that's really important. You also want to identify what are some of the sources of information that, that are out there about your organization. These could be, you know, different websites, different analyst reports, um, you know, maybe even if depending on your level, maybe ask the business to provide some of that information for you. Right. This would probably be at a, at a more senior level, right? Um, and and then you know, if you can, before you even formally start the, your at the organization in that le, in that uh, new role, you know, try to do some uh, get out there, right? Try to do some familiarization uh, visits uh, of the the key facilities, for example, to orient yourself in terms of you know. Uh, what does the organization actually do? Um, what are some of the key facets to how it runs and so forth? Yeah, if they've got multi-locations and that kind of thing, you'll find out that, you know, the company has a broader culture, but each each office, as it were, will have its own culture. So if you can go visit a couple places, that can be super helpful in calibrating what you do to be appropriate for the, uh, the business writ large, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well said. So that the second checklist uh, in the first 90 days for on- onboarding, so you have your business orientation checklist. The second one is stakeholder connection checklist. One thing mm-hmm. that will derail you super fast coming into a new role is if you don't handle those key stakeholders uh, well. And one way you completely miss it is not having at least a list of all the stakeholders that will have some kind of connection to what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And so you should explicitly, you know, ask, uh, you know, who yeah, you could ask your boss, you could ask maybe um, your predecessor in that role, if that's appropriate. Um, but ask around to try to get introductions to the key people who uh, interact with your role. Um, try to meet with them, right. I- ideally, as soon as possible, maybe even before you formally start. <clears throat> and uh, schedule some meetings with these folks. Um, try to really uh, build these relationships in a productive way right from the get-go. Um, and, and one area that I see that is oftentimes ignored, and this is just from my own observation doing 
multi-rater assessments with key leaders in organizations is that a lot of times they know that, you know, I've got to do some stuff to make the people who work for me relatively happy and confident in my leadership. I've got to manage up to some degree to make my boss happy, but they oftentimes forget about those horizontal, those lateral types of relationships. And they, you know, they do things that isolate themselves from their peers they aren't uh, aren't playing well with uh, with other departments, other parts of the organization, and and that can really be damaging, right? Especially like most larger organizations are somewhat of a matrix, so you got to mm-hmm. you got to get your peers on the same sheet of music if you're you're going to achieve. And and one of the things that I see people miss and those stakeholder, you know, they get okay. You know, there's Phil in accounting and and Bob in IT, and they, they get a good list. But one of the pieces that is often missing in those conversations outside of, oh, well, what do you do and how does that fit is what kind of communication um, do you want from me and my section that that I manage, right? Um, mm-hmm. And then a, a question I like to open up with is when I'm in the role is, hey, is there communication that you wish you would get that you haven't gotten in the past? Mm-hmm. A, a great... W- way to build rapport right out of the gates is to start to provide that communication um, where it hasn't been. Uh, it shows that you validate or, or value and care care for those the desires of your peers as, as well as other people in the organization. Yeah, and that's a way for you to kind of have a quick win at, in your new role. To, you know, it's like, hey, this new person came in and, uh, hey, this is communication we didn't normally get before, and now this person's pumping that out, and it's been really helpful for us. And that starts to build the confidence that you need from all the people who are around you. Right, right. So the next uh, onboarding checklist um, is an expectations alignment checklist. Yeah. Yeah, so there are a number of things that come from this. And again, this is all from the the first 90 days. Um, But you need to understand what your role is in terms of business planning. You need to understand also your the performance management system that's going on in your organization how is your performance going to be evaluated what's the remit so to speak that you have to the people around you what are you supposed to provide them with what are the deliverables you have and you know no matter how well you think you understand what you need to do you need to talk with your boss about this stuff you need to talk with the people around you to really start to get that understanding in place because if you screw this up um that's that's not going to set you off on the right foot uh, you should also kind of have some some good conversations with the people around you, including your boss and your direct reports, about working styles. Um, one thing that I do, and this is in my my military role, but when I uh, when I take uh, charge of a new group, I will oftentimes, well, in fact, if I'm kind of formally in command, I always put out a document that says, you know, this is my kind of my leadership philosophy, and it's just a short thing, uh, but it says here's the here are the behaviors I really value. These are the things that I hold myself to and things that I expect from all of you as well. And that really can start to, for, right, from, right from the get-go, um, kind of have a, a level playing field for saying, hey, here's here's what I expect. Here's how I tend to operate. Um, and here's some of my expectations of all of you as well. Right. And one of those things within those expectations is you may understand what the broader role look like. I mean, through your knock on wood through the interview process, right? If they ha- did a good, you know, job description and that kind of stuff. But mm-hmm. one of the things with that expectation alignment is like, okay, so now that I'm here, what is something I need to achieve this quarter? 
right? Mm-hmm. And just, you know, let's formalize these expectations. Um, that's where you as a person who will be executing that work, you know, if they give you a thousand item list, you can say, hey, listen, within the first quarter, I can do 20 of these. So let, mm-hmm. let's pick those 20 that are most critical to you. You want it, it's not just a gathering of their expectations, but it's also setting setting their expectations so you can set your own self for success. You know, don't bite off more than you can chew, right? Right, exactly. And I see that as a, uh, a, a common area in which really ambitious first-time managers can fail. They will, you know, they'll get uh, a list of things that their boss says they need to deliver, and they'll say, you know, okay, you know, yes, sir, yes, ma'am, let's, let's get all that done. And they um, don't realize that they have just bitten off way more than they can chew. They don't realize that perhaps all that big list of things was kind of unrealistic, and so this is where it's it needs to be a conversation um, with your the people around you, saying you know this is what I think is possible, and making sure that you can um, you know be successful, especially during those early phases in that new role. Yeah, and and also you'll get a reputation within the organization. So if you say yes, sir, and you beat your team to death accomplishing that in six months, and then move on to another role, I know like within the military, within larger enterprise organizations, people will call and say, hey, what was it like working with person X? Right. Um, You don't want to have that reputation as somebody who is a slave driver, right? So Mm -hmm. people are running a marathon. And, you know, if you're an accountant, you've got to come in and get the quarterly reports every quarter. Um, It's not sustainable. And one thing that larger organizations do to evaluate managerial effectiveness is look at turnover rate. So if you you have a high turnover rate, you know, those those bad behaviors, being it those interpersonal behaviors, a lack of self-awareness, people will leave. Yeah. What's that quote? People don't leave companies. They leave bad managers or something like mm-hmm. that. And, yeah. and so th- make sure that you have a, you have expectations set, you know, both gather those expectations from your boss, but then also get with your team, evaluate, you know, if you don't know what their work output is when you're just coming into a fresh situation, you might want to say, Hey, listen, let me get 30, 60 days with my team to see, where they are, or yeah, we'll start executing on this right now. But if you notice that your team just can't keep it together and achieve it, that, you know, cadence or tempo, right. Then you might go back to your boss. Hey, we need to get some more resources on this Mm -hmm. or, or this endangers turnover, those kinds of things. Absolutely. So so that kind of goes into the, the managing the expectations and managing that relationship proactively, Versus getting yourself in alert and saying, "Oh, well, we didn't achieve it," and uh, having to having to kind of uh, go back with with that bad news. Yeah, because organizations that don't have excellent onboarding procedures, managerial briefing books, and all that stuff, they'll tend to kind of you know throw spaghetti at the wall. You know, let's just hire a bunch of managers. The ones that stick, stick, and the the ones that fail, they just kind of shrug and say, "Uh." Oh, well, uh, mm-hmm. you know, so which is like one of those things. So the, the final checklist is like that cultural adaptation checklist. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. what's the company's culture? Um, checking in with HR. Lots of times HR isn't super empowered within an organization. 
but they can kind of tell you where the skeletons are. Um, and, and they probably will to set you up for success so they don't have to go through the pain of hiring somebody else. Um, I think most, <laughs> most people, that's something you have working in your advantage. Once they get you in the door, um, they may not do the behaviors to set you up for success, but there is a desire for you to be successful. So use that mm-hmm. to your advantage. Um, cultural interpreters are helpful. You know, who in the organization can kind of give me the lay of the land on how work gets done around here? Um, mm-hmm. So that that kind of leads us to our next next sign of section here is like, okay, so we've talked about the individual level, you know, what can cause you to derail? How should you manage that transition to avoid derailment? Now, if you're an organization that wants to set people up for success and be a good place to work, um, that so you don't have to keep going through that hiring process over and over and over. So what are some steps organizations can uh, take to avoid having their managers derail? So there's a number of things that we know from the research that can be really helpful. And this is uh, where I'm talking specifically to you know, the, the CEOs, the CHROs, the VPs of HR, the VPs of talent management, leadership development, those people really need to pay attention to a couple of things. First of all, they need to help people understand uh, what their skills are and where they are, maybe have some disparities, some discrepancies between what they need to do. So they need to help them through assessing where they are so they can understand what their weaknesses are and what their strengths are. And then one way to do this is through, uh, you know, having a solid multi-rater assessment process as part of your leadership development types of activities. Another thing is that, you know, there are certain characteristics that are, are tough to overcome through training and development. Um, some things that you may want to strongly consider avoiding if you see these types of characteristics in people when you're trying to hire or select for a managerial position. You want to avoid those people who are perhaps arrogant, uh, you know, overly confident, those people who are aloof, right. kind of un- unaware of um, how people are interacting, um, because these are all signs of, of lack of self-awareness. People who are insensitive, um, people who are overly defensive, uh, those types of people should be avoided when you're trying to fill managerial positions. Uh, so those are a few things that are, are fairly specific that can be really helpful. Yeah, I think I heard a, a roar of cheer from the peanut gallery on, gosh, <laughs> wouldn't it be great if there was no managers that, you know, if we didn't have managers that had those those items, which mm-hmm. means, like, you know, being aware uh, as HR about the fact that being arrogant and insensitive, lots of times, depending on the culture, can be viewed as being decisive, a get-it-done type person. Mm-hmm. Um, that's actually not what the literature shows on teams and how organizations should work. Um, you need to have that kind of emotional intelligence, self-awareness, because um, you got you want the organization firing on all cylinders. And some of this stuff, like as HR or as an organization writ large, you have this idea of, you know, you're the mirror for people. So people that want to be self-aware, that want to get better, you need to have structural items within the organization that that show people where they're performance. So that 360 review provides, you know, that feedback. I There hasn't really been a manager or executive that I've talked to that hadn't wished that they say, I wish I knew what 
people really thought so I could calibrate myself in the way that would help the org be most effective. Mm-hmm. Right. That, that absolutely could be very helpful. And I think, you know, another set of activities or ideas that can be really helpful for at the organizational level to try to prevent managerial derailment is remembering that uh, it's important to try to spot some of these early signs of derailment and intervene earlier rather than later. Um, and, and some of this comes through experience. Some of it comes through noticing some of these behaviors we've already talked about here in this episode. But if, if as a, um, as a VP of talent management, as a leadership development person, uh, as a senior leader within the organization, there should be some things that if you notice that they're going wrong, like if you notice that, uh, this new leader is being overly defensive, if you notice that they're being rather arrogant and not developing relationships, well, get involved early on and, try to, you know, correct that course as soon as possible versus thinking, oh, they're just settling in. Once they kind of get the hang of things, things are going to work out. They'll figure it out. Chances are they won't. And uh, it's much better to try to get in there early. Some of the research um, out there on managerial derailment um, shows how, you know, people can recover from, from derailing. Right. Uh, you know, if, if you intervene early, if they start to pay attention to, to the right things, they can get back on the track, but you need to do it early on. Right. And so uh, th- those are just some things that I would think about from a an executive level kind of organizational talent management perspective. Yeah. And, and I think not taking a walk the plank approach. So I see this really common you know, you're a director and you've hired several managers or a VP, you've hired several directors. You're like, well, let's see how they do. Mm-hmm. And then very quickly you're finding, oh, I don't think this person is decisive enough. And, and you begin to allow your internal biases to churn. Um, so it's like, okay, you, you know, you were successful, so we're not going to, you know, kick you out into the ocean. That That's not the kind of tempo you you want to set. You want to set a collaborative alliance. Hey, uh, manager that reports to me, I really want you to be successful. So we're going to have an ongoing dialogue to ensure uh, you're successful. So one of the things is like with the book, The First 90 Days, which I just use because it's just a kind of no-brainer checklist on how to be successful and get brought into the organization. Um one of the things they talk about in that book is it's kind of like an infectious disease. So you need somebody. You make the business case that you need somebody. You go through all of this stuff to get a good job description, the budget approved. You interview a whole bunch of people, which is a pain because you you got your regular job to do. And then maybe you got to do 30, 40 hours worth of different interviews and resume review. You finally get them in the position and then people make room for themselves. They have to. They're new. And so um, in the first 90 days, lots of times when people are making room for themselves, the organization kind of wants to reject it, oddly enough. So mm-hmm. if you're that person, you can use that checklist, uh, the checklist, many checklists that are in that book to ensure you're successful. But if you're the organization or the person who did the hiring, you can use that checklist as a roadmap to ensure their success. Mm-hmm. Early intervention is better. If they're if they're getting derailed, have a conversation with them. And it's got to be in a cultural light of this isn't to just say, oh, you're getting really close to the edge of that plank before I just boot you out to the sharks. Um, yeah. 
It, it needs to be, hey, here's where you're derailing. Let's get a plan so we can get you back on 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 course. It, it won't take long for that person with that earlier coaching is better, right? To get to the place where you need them if they're adaptable. Absolutely. And then screening. You know, everybody's seen people with personality problems. If they're selfish and impulsive, if you see people exploiting others regularly, those are kind of moral issues, in my view, that needed to, to have been sorted out in Boy Scouts, you know? <laughs> yeah. If you're, <laughs> if you're a grown person and you have a regular habit of exploiting others, I, it's going to be challenging for an organization. I would recommend maybe not coaching around that behavior extensively. This, you yeah. know, hey, these kind of behaviors are not acceptable. If we see them going forward, that's going to be very problematic for you. Um, mm -hmm. And then past that, you know, some people just can't shed those lessons learned in your in their youth, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. And that's where it goes to, you know, the idea that if you select well, then it's a lot easier to... Uh, to have someone be successful, it, it's very hard. You know, development is great and coaching is great. Uh, even better is to get someone in the role who, you know, maybe they need coaching on a handful of things, but not on some of these more character or personality related things. Right. So let's talk about that selection briefly. Um, you know, one of the approaches, I mean, the approach that's foisted on you in the military is, hey, you get the people you get, right? You don't get to mm -hmm. go through the hiring process. So if I say, Ben Barron, your mission is to take this hill, and you were to say, hey, that's a great mission and everything, but have you seen the numbskulls you gave me to do it with? Well, you, you can't ever say that, right? <laughs> right. But, well, I would also, yeah, in that situation, I'd also add that, uh, um, you know, I'm in the Navy, so that uh, I, I don't really take a whole lot of hills. I, although there were, when we were in Afghanistan, there was literally zero ocean for you to play in. So, <laughs> touche, touche. So, so in an environment where you're just handed your followers, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you don't get to hire. Okay, you're going to have to do some coaching and development, and then follow an HR uh, process to remove people that just can't make it. But one of the cool things are, or is that. You know, out in the business world, we kind of get to make our hires, right? So we, yeah. don't, we don't have to throw spaghetti against the wall and hope that we make some good hires. So what are some things that we can do in the interview process and stuff to make sure we don't get, you know, crazy narcissists that exploit others and, and those kinds of items? Right. So, you know, any decision involving people is a game of probabilities. And when you are looking at selection types of decisions about who you're going to hire or who you're going to promote. What you're trying to do is you're trying to maximize the probability that you're going to get someone good and minimize the probability that you're going to get someone bad in that role. And so a few things that you can do to try to maximize the probability that you're going to get someone who will succeed is, first of all, you need to understand what the job entails. And this in involves, you know, what are the specific tasks? What kinds of technology are used? What are the uh, associated knowledge, skills, and abilities of a person who's going to perform well in that job. At more senior levels, you also have to understand what is kind of the uh, cultural and strategic context of that role. You know, so for example, 
you, know, you may have like the um, the COO in a business that's you know fairly stable, uh, where they're maybe in an industry that doesn't have a whole lot of disruption. Um, that's going to be take a different type of person than if you put a person in a COO job in a highly dynamic, volatile, uncertain type of environment. Right. Uh, so you know, just I think as you get more senior, that that job analysis, so to speak, needs to broaden to involve more of the work context and and look at you know what kinds of decisions are this, is this person going to need to make. What's the operating environment? So that's kind of step one is understand what you're trying to hire for and what are the the key competencies or the knowledge, skills, abilities that you're looking for in people when you're trying to make those decisions. Set those criteria up front. And then from that, you can start to design your um, your way to assess those different things. And this can be done in a host of different ways. And of course, we could have a whole episode or entire series of episodes on kind of the science of hiring. But um, one thing is that you need to design uh, an interview uh, system that that taps into those different facets of what's important in the job, so that you're asking questions in a way to try to understand, um, you know, better what that person can do and their experiences and the way they think about things. Uh, there could be some more formal types of assessments involved. Um, you know, everything from uh, work sample tests. So you give them an aspect of the work where they try things in managerial situations. They, you know, sometimes there are, you present them with different scenarios and they, they respond to them, those types of things. Again, it, it all needs to be tied back to the job and you need to have some, some shared understanding about what, uh, good answers look like on these different types of, of assessments. And from that, you, you can start to, you know, minimize the possibility that you're going to get someone in there who is uh, going to derail. You're not always going to prevent it. Again, this is a game of probabilities, but if you consistently apply these types of principles, you will increase your probability of success. Right. And and several things. And for me, I always thought this was completely obvious, but I keep seeing this within organizations. Hey, we need to hire a new manager of manufacturing or whatever. Mm-hmm. HR is like, okay, give me a job description. You know, if you're an HR, copy and paste that into Google because nine times out of 10, well, I can't say it's that many. I've just seen it too many times where somebody just copied and pasted. They didn't want to write a good job description. So they go to Glassdoor or, you know, one of these job websites and just cut and paste somebody else's job description. And that's not going to be... that's not going to be fit for your organization. So if you're in HR, don't accept that. If that manager can't seem to get it together to do it, go sit down and help write it with them, right? Um, it's going to help you avoid going through that hiring process again. The second piece is a lot of people judge people as like, oh, this person just can't make a good hire. Well, one of the things is it happens. You can follow all these best practices for getting the good people in there and still have maybe two in a row not do well. Um, Mm -hmm. Those exit interviews and reflecting why did this person not do well are very important to calibrate, you know, is it something the organization is doing that's preventing these people's success or did we just get a bet two in a row bad luck, right? And you Mm -hmm. want to evaluate what processes were followed, those kinds of issues rather than just a total count you know, this person, oh, three strikes, you're out. Now we're going to fire you. And now we got to hire two managers, right? You don't right. want to do that. 
And the final thing I want to add is that idea of, you know, when you have those kind of interviews where somebody has to demonstrate doing the skills that is required, something I don't see that often um, that is super helpful is if it's for like an executive director, VP, C-suite type person um, or manager is it's not just, you know, how would you handle this technical problem with your team? You -hmm. need to handle um, or ask questions or have somebody demonstrate cultural uh, issues. Okay. So there's an ethics violation. What do you do? Oh, well, I go tell HR. Well, tell me about some of those interpersonal skills or items that you, you know, how would you execute this interpersonally? How do you set up communication? Those kinds of issues um, that, that speak to those items that, you know, okay, let's say you and a peer, here might be a good example, you and a peer are competing for the same job. How would you go about it? Some of those stuff might reveal, hey, is this person selfish? Might this Mm -hmm. person exploit, you know, if they can't even kind of paint the pig, so to speak, in an interview, you know, when they get in and the rubber meets the road in the actual business environment, that that those behaviors are gonna gonna happen. Right, right. Absolutely. So I think, you know, we've talked here about what managerial derailment is. We've talked about some examples. We've talked about some practical things that both people can do individually and what organizations can do. So maybe we should uh, recap a little bit here. Right. So managerial derailment, that's when you're hoping somebody's going to perform at a certain level or they've done really well at their level and you promote them and they they just don't achieve um, mm-hmm. what you want at that level or and they just they fail and, and you don't even expect it right yep absolutely and some of the causes of that we, you know that we talked about here we've talked about the idea that uh, you know if you um, might just have stuff that happens that's number one uh, number two you have weaknesses that go ignored Number three, you may have uh, complacency, just some success that goes to your heads. And then number four, you may have some strengths that actually become weaknesses. And those kind of apply across the, the full range of, of managerial roles. In addition, at the more senior levels, you may have strategic missteps, some of the things we talked about there. Um, we talked about some different ways to avoid it. And one of the biggest things we talked about here today was developing that self-awareness that you need to have. Right. And so if you're worried about if you're self-aware or not, ask, you know, use some tools, but if you're worried about it, that's a good step in the right direction. Uh, some ways to avoid it on an individual level is be self-reflective, develop your own onboarding plan if the organization hasn't provided you with one. If mm-hmm. they if they have, follow it. Also, go buy the book the first 90 days. Every person that's stepping into a managerial role and has to navigate those changes in position the checklists there are are hugely helpful. If you're an organization, have good hiring practices, have good onboarding plans, and also have a way to support that person in developing those new skills. Be the mirror that lets that person look and see, you know, do I have a giant spaghetti stain on my shirt as far as my performance? Um, right. So they can calibrate themselves. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So I think we, uh, that's a pretty good wrap on all the things we talked about 
here today with regards to managerial derailment. And hopefully some of these ideas and these uh, different tactics can be helpful to for, for our listeners if they're in a managerial role to inoculate themselves uh, as well as the people around them from this phenomenon of derailment. I'd like to throw out a special thanks to Lee Williams for her research assistance in preparing for this episode. Yay, Lee. And yay, Lee. So I think that's a wrap for today. What do you think, Chris? Yep, sounds good, Ben. Thanks for listening to the Indigo Podcast. If you like this podcast, please consider helping us by rating us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, telling your friends about us, having us on your podcast, or mentioning us on social media. Our website is www.indigopodcast.com, where you can access more information about us and this episode. Thanks again, and we look forward to talking with you again soon.